WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to The Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts, Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. Today we're going to be discussing the bacteria Staphylococcus aureus, which causes a staph infection. Something that many people may not know is that this bacteria resides on the skin on 30% of the population, but it does not cause a disease. To tell us more about it, we have Josh Lenzmeyer here. Josh, can you please introduce yourself and your research for us? I am a fifth-year graduate student in the Department of Microbiology and Molecular Genetics, and I work in the lab of Neil Hammer, and my research focuses on the pathogen Staphylococcus aureus and the nutrient requirements of this pathogen during infection. Thanks for joining us, Josh. Whenever people hear the word nutrients, it's usually associated with positive definitions. However, the idea behind a nutrient can differ from organism to organism. What do nutrients for bacteria usually consist of, and are any of these same nutrients beneficial to us? That is a very interesting question. And to answer that question, we can start to think about a pathogen during infection needs compounds that it actually can take from us to support its growth. And these nutrients can actually be things in our bodies that we also need to grow. So the pathogen can kind of exploit these compounds present in the body and take them for themselves. We recently had an episode about tuberculosis, and we've had other episodes about different bacteria and pathogens. Could you please help our audience understand what is Staphylococcus aureus and what are the characteristics of it? As we mentioned at the beginning, Staphylococcus aureus is an organism that can be present on your skin. And this organism only causes disease once it gets inside of your body. And then once inside of your body, it's an interesting pathogen in that it can actually infect a bunch of different locations inside of your body. So it can get inside of your bloodstream and then it can cause disease in a whole range of organs. For instance, staph aureus can also cause infection inside of your bones. And when staph is inside of your bone, it actually causes a deterioration or a loss of your bone density. So you actually see a loss of your bone structure. So you get little holes inside of the bone. And in other organs, staph aureus results in what is called an abscess, which is kind of a pimple looking structure on the surface of the organs. Not gonna lie, Josh, that sounds pretty nasty. I remember getting a staph infection actually back in high school wrestling. It is better than ringworm, though. Where are some common places that Staphylococcus can be found in, and how do the nutrients compare to these other environments compared to the skin? Staphylococcus aureus is a member of the skin microbiome of a certain percentage of the population. There can be two modes of staph transmission. There can be a community-acquired transition mode where you would get the disease from people in your community. And this could be like surfaces in the wrestling rooms. This could be like locker room surfaces. And in these conditions, the staph would come from the people and then be spread into the environment. And then there's also hospital-acquired staph infections where staph aureus is present in the hospital setting. And so it can lead to infection by being in the hospital. We actually don't quite know how Staph aureus is able to colonize the skin and the nutrients it requires during colonization of your skin. That's an area that's starting to be studied more now. 
When you were introducing your research, you briefly said that you were studying Staphylococcus aureus in regards to nutrients it needs to consume in its environment. Can you tell us what nutrients you're focusing on? Yes, my research specifically focuses on methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, which is also known as MRSA. When we study MRSA, we're looking at the nutrient of sulfur that it requires during infection. And sulfur is an essential nutrient for Staph aureus in MRSA because it drives the metabolism of the bacterium. And so my research specifically looks at what sulfur sources is MRSA trying to utilize in specific infection sites. It's pretty intriguing that the MRSA bacterium is interested in sulfur-containing compounds. How does sulfur drive the metabolism of the MRSA bacteria? Is it similar to how people metabolize and digest food, or how is it different? As humans need to acquire key nutrients from our food to provide us the vitamins we need, MRSA uses the sulfur sources it acquires from the host to drive metabolism in similar manners. So the sulfur sources are brought into the cell and then they're incorporated into metabolites the cell needs to drive proteins and other enzymes inside of the cell to allow the staph to grow. It makes sense that you're investigating different concentrations to see how they would react. You had also mentioned that you were looking at a variety of sulfur sources. Which one are you specifically studying? My work specifically focuses on a couple sulfur sources. The first is the amino acid cysteine, which has a sulfur in its side group. And then I also focus on a cellular antioxidant known as glutathione, which accumulates to pretty high levels inside of our cells to protect eukaryotic cells from damage. And so we specifically look at whether these sulfur sources are used in specific infection sites. And we look at Staph aureus infection in a mouse model of infection, and we examine liver, heart, and kidney growth of Staph aureus. Part of me had the feeling that one of these targets must have been an amino acid, so thanks for validating that. You said you use a mouse model to study the Staph, and it makes me think about the pathogen's ability to infect. Is there a different species of MRSA that infects mice, or does the same Staph bacterium infect all animals? For our mouse model of infection, we can actually use the human-derived strains of MRSA. And Staphylococcus aureus can actually infect a couple different animals. Another common cause of staph infection is in cows, where they get this condition, which is called bovine mastitis. And that can predominantly be caused by staph aureus. It's cool that you're using a mouse model for this. However, I'm wondering about your techniques. Are you directly applying the MRSA onto the mice to see the effects on their skin? Or are you feeding it or injecting it to them to see how it affects their organs like their liver? We are actually injecting the MRSA into the mouse and then it enters their bloodstream. And then within a couple hours post-infection, studies have shown that the MRSA is gone from the bloodstream, but distributed into the various organ infection sites. And we do this injection through injecting the MRSA behind the eye, and then it enters the bloodstream directly. Wow, that sounds like a really fast metabolism rate. Could you expand how you're investigating how the different sulfur sources are actually changing the MRSA's metabolism? 
do you change the sulfur levels in the mice or is there something that happens to the MRSA beforehand? So a lot of our initial studies are where we use genetics to try to find the proteins that are responsible for transporting these various sulfur sources into MRSA. And then we disrupt those transporters and then we examine the growth of MRSA in medium supplemented with that sulfur source to see whether MRSA can still import the sulfur source or not. So then after that, we would go to the infection model with the mice and we would infect these mutant strains of MRSA and see if they can colonize to the same level in the organ sites as the wild type strain. So we haven't yet gone to changing the sulfur source levels in the mouse. We just leave the sulfur source levels in the mouse as they would be naturally. You're genetically disrupting the proteins to transport the sulfur sources. Are these proteins that are traditionally known that everyone is well aware of that it affects the sulfur sources? Or are these new proteins that you're investigating? If they are new proteins, why did you specifically choose those? Two of the initial transporters that are proteins that we decided to study were described as cysteine transporters in a closely related bacterium, but they were not described as cysteine transporters in MRSA. So we chose those two because of the characterization in the closely related bacterium. And then for glutathione utilization as a sulfur source, we actually did not have any clues into what the transporters would be. So what the lab previously did was we have this library of MRSA strains where it has 95% of the genes in MRSA disrupted. We have each of those strains individually isolated, and all of those strains were grown in a medium with glutathione as a sole sulfur source. And then anything that did not display growth in that condition was further examined. And what came out of this genetic screen was we got the result of this area of DNA that was reduced for growth in glutathione as a sulfur source. And this area of DNA is an area where a couple proteins are in the same area. And when the mRNA is formed for this area, all of these proteins are contained in the mRNA which mRNA is messenger RNA, which is the message that is used to translate the mRNA into the protein. So this area where all of these proteins are encoded on the same mRNA, and then this leads to all of these proteins being expressed at the same time. From point A to point B, this experiment sounds pretty complicated. Once you've examined the mice organs, how do you know whether or not the, the staph infection was able to grow? Are there chemical techniques involved for performing this kind of verification? After we collect the organs from the mice, we will homogenize the organs. And then after which we can dilute these organ homogenates into sterile medium. And then from there, we can plate this sterile medium onto bacterial growth auger and then Staph aureus colonies will come up in this auger, and then we can determine the amount of Staph we are retrieving from the organs, and then we can compare this to a wild-type Staph aureus infection and the amount of Staph that comes out from that infection. When you played it on the agar, how are you able to determine how much of the infection is there? Do you just look at it and then see how many colonies grow? Or do you use like a machine to scan it and then calculate the surface area of how much is infected? We can actually count the colonies that form. 
there's a thing called colony forming units, which is where you assume that one bacterial colony comes from one bacterial cell. So then from this, we can get the amount of colony forming units that were present in each of the organs. Out of all the sulfur sources, which one was inhibiting the growth of the MRSA bacterium the most? And was this answer surprising to you when you finally got to your result? We find that when we disrupt two transporters that are known to be involved in the transport of cysteine and two other compounds that are structurally similar to cysteine, that we get a defect in our mouse model of infection. And this indicates that in the heart and liver that MRSA must be importing the compounds of these transporters. And this wasn't overly surprising because human cells need to use cysteine to make our proteins. Because of this, we think that there could just be a pool of cysteine inside of eukaryotic cells. And so it's an abundant sulfur source. It makes sense that cysteine was so impactful since it's so abundant. Something I've been thinking of is that in this model, you're genetically modifying the MRSA strains and seeing how it can grow with different sulfur sources. However, how is this research translatable to people who are infected with MRSA? The overall goal we have of this research is if we can understand the sulfur sources that are being used in the various infection sites, we can then try to think of better therapeutic strategies to maybe try to block the utilization of these sulfur sources and then just try and stop MRSA from growing by being unable to acquire these sulfur sources. It's great that these studies are going to help people with staph infection treatments. Have you been able to work in a laboratory since the COVID-19 pandemic has started? And if so, what has changed? Yes, we've been able to go back into the lab. And we're actually working on some cool work now where we're trying to look at the combination of both glutathione transport and cysteine transport during infection. We're actually getting ready to do another larger mouse experiment next week. So we'll get some exciting results in addition to cysteine being important if glutathione is also important as a sulfur source during infection. I know there's a pandemic going on right now, so I'm not going to ask you, like, what are you involved with? But are you doing any fun side projects during this time? Yes, I've actually been working with the chair of our department. And we're actually working on proposing a new course for graduate students where we focus on more of scientific critical thinking. And so that's been a very interesting, fun side project to think about what are the basic skills a scientist should have and how should we teach them in a different way. Thank you for talking to us about your research on MRSA metabolism, Josh. And equally as important is the work you're putting in to improve how materials are taught in the classroom within your department. Good luck with the rest of your PhD, and we hope to see you again in the future whenever the pandemic's over. The Sci-Files is hosted by Chelsea Voodoo and Daniel Puentes on Impact 89FM. Thank you to our news director, Taylor Halterman, program director, Amber Konutsky, station manager, Joe Dandrin, and general manager, Jeremy Whiting. The SciFiles can be found online on SciFiles.org and on your favorite podcast directory. If you're an MSU student and want to be featured on SciFiles, or if you have any questions, you can contact us at SciFiles at impact9fm.org. Thanks for listening, and remember, the truth is in the science. <laughs>